One of the descriptions that the Buddha gave of the experience of loving-kindness was a mother cow looking at her newborn calf. So just at that moment of giving birth and, and making that connection visually, that, that that is the experience of loving-kindness. And I've always been touched by that um, description because he didn't use a human being uh, as an example. It, it was like a cow. so he's describing in that incredibly powerful moment of birth the connection and if we um, could imagine for example if we were holding a baby bird in our hand and you just feel the quality of awareness that we need to hold a baby bird and to feel its heart beating, um, there's a kind of hush and quiet that is necessary to hold like a little newborn baby bird. Uh, Our heart is actually always newborn. Consciousness, the mind or our heart door, each moment is new. Each moment, the last moment already died. Next moment is new. So this this consciousness, this mind or heart door that is infinite, um, it's just like to be in touch with it is like holding a baby bird. Or making that connection with it is like being in touch with a newborn. It's vulnerable. And not a, I don't know, the word vulnerable is such a complicated maybe word for us, but it's just that sense of um, anything can happen. Suzuki Roshi in the book Beginner's Mind describes mindfulness as soft readiness. And I've, I've loved that more poetic description of mindfulness because it's actually quite profound if, if you even took the word readiness, which means anything can happen. So the truth is, is that anything can happen and that the practice is meant to get us strong enough to be with that, whether it's pleasure, pain, neutral, or anything. It's like we have some idea that mindfulness or the practice should somehow protect us from kama or karma unfolding. But karma is really the medicine of life for our ignorance. So we we talk, we have been referring to this the sensitivities the the eye sensitivity the nose sensitivity the body sensitivity etc and the mind sensitivity. 
And it's, um, we can't be reminded enough, you know, that when it's painful, <laughs> it, it hurts. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, if we could only be like E.T. that just goes, ow, right? You know, ow, you know, it's just like, but there's all that feigning. And so, we, you know, we're resisting, we're resisting and resisting that ow. Or, ah, you know, it's like, ah, like that, just that, what an instrument that can feel that, that, um, with such nuance, with such refinement. So that phrase, may we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, another perspective of that is um, what is safety, what is protection. Well, when there's soft readiness present, we're protected. When we're connected with whatever is happening, we're protected. When we disconnect, we abandon ourselves. When we resist, we're, we're not with the experience and we're not protected. The Buddha um, said there are two types of rare and precious human beings in this world. Two types of rare and precious human beings in this world. One who um, shows kindness, one who is kind, and one who receives kindness with gratitude very important part of the teaching of loving-kindness. So rare and precious. <laughs> hmm. And if you just referred that to yourself, like if it was just, are we kind to ourselves, and are we um, able to receive that kindness with gratitude? And I think about whenever I have the privilege to live off the grid in any way, you know, the the level to which we can start appreciating light, you know, just light. And if our flashlight goes out, or the fear of losing the flashlight, or forgetting our flashlight, or forgetting our raincoat, you know, my first night here, I just was like, didn't, was so busy, and it, it's 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 ingrained in me ever since my first night because I was leaving the middle house really late at night, and it just started pouring, you know. And it, it's amazing again, just that when you're living like just this much close to the wilderness, how you get in touch much more with the elements, and you know the. Um, even though it's comfortable, it's not the, quite as comfortable as walking in a room and just turning a light on, you know? We do have running water, but this is how we do the dishes here, right? You know, there's a, it's a, you can still feel the preciousness of having water, you can feel the preciousness of having food, the preciousness of just basic comfort. And how, when, you know, it's just our nature to take it for granted. 
And that, you know, it's like when you get in the position where you don't take it for granted, how much more grateful we are. It's fascinating. So important. There's a um, poem by Saigyo. He lived in the 1100s. He was born in 1118. He said, Whatever it is, I cannot understand it. Although gratitude stubbornly overcomes me until I'm reduced to tears. Whatever it is, I cannot understand it. Although gratitude stubbornly overcomes me until I'm reduced to tears. You know, and that can happen. You know, you might love chai, you know, and just like it might not be tasting chai, it might be seeing a hummingbird or, you know, it's like something happens and you can't quite understand it, but it just touches us so deeply. And that rare and precious type of human being that you get, oh, this is rare and precious. It might be lying on a hammock, you know, just that sense of like being held and learning from that experience of being in the hammock that the metta is meant to hold us just like that. And how grateful again we are to get a sense of this experience. And maybe we have the experience of anger and we are actually able to be with it even somewhat and we, we have a sense of its impermanence and that it isn't personal and that it really does come and go by itself like a cloud passing through the sky. And that experience strengthens us and we'll feel gratitude for anger coming and going because we know we've gotten free in that moment there's been there's been a liberation whatever that you know we say whatever it is but we might not be able to describe it that well but we get a strength of this strength of soft readiness There's also the incredible (laughs) um, way that we might just be with a a rabbit here. You know, really, it's just like, it's incredible how we can understand that, that animals or clouds or sky, something touches us and it's like it holds the truth for us. It holds the truth of kindness for us in a way that maybe being with another human being doesn't do, you know. It's, it's, it's so mysterious in a way, but so important. It's one of the many reasons we like to offer the teachings on the Brahma Viharas is because they actually soften the heart. 
And the, the first, the loving kindness, is actually meant to help soften the heart and melt resistance. So we will say again and again that it's the resistance to an experience that's so painful. The actual experience, even if it's unpleasant or painful, isn't as, as painful as the actual, you know, oh no, you know, and that, like, I can't be with that. Like, it's the, and then it's the aversion to the aversion to the aversion, or the, the collapsing, the fear, the collapsing, you know, that, just that um, disconnect. And it's something to explore. You know, we can say it, but it, it's really to start to see how kindness actually will melt resistance over time with patience. Krishnamurti said in one of his journals, just to be vulnerable, just to be sensitive, like that new green leaf that was born yesterday, to face rain, wind, darkness, and light. And that's the practice. That's that soft readiness. That's the newborn leaf. It's like just to be vulnerable. And try it. Just see how long you last. Like try to just not do anything and just be. And you won't even remember when you slipped off. And that's a practice I do so much. It's like just you just you just see if you can be with that for a few seconds and gone. You know, and then you come back and it's like so fascinating. One of the um, ways that I work with self-hatred when it appears, particularly when it starts to get merciless, is, um, of course I'll say, oh, it's the merciless space, or you know, the self-hatred place. But I try to remember that the self-hatred is a cover it's a defense. And if I say, oh, this is a defense, this is a defense, and then I just stay with it for a while, I remember that it's a defense against being vulnerable. And it's just that fear of pain, the fear of pain coming, some kind of um, projection from the past onto the future. And it really helps. I'm not kidding. It's just like, it's just that remembrance of that vulnerability is okay, that not knowing what's going to happen next is actually the truth. And if I can remember to be in touch with it, that vulnerability, then the self-hatred will drop away. It doesn't work every time, but it's a very powerful practice that has helped me a lot. So our defenses, you know, whether it's wary or self-pity, or self-hatred, or rage, or anger, or doubt. It's like fear, all these ways that we attempt to protect ourselves. They're all just protections against the truth that we never know what's going to happen next. between behavior, right, 
and what's appropriate. And this is like the loving-kindness practice is all about distinguishing between people's behavior and their essence. And so when we say get in touch with the feeling essence of yourself or another, we're not focusing in on their unpleasant behavior in that particular practice. In compassion practice, you start moving into the painful behavior. But in the metta practice, you're not. You're trying to find that newborn heart that is beyond behavior. And then you're learning to distinguish between the essence of a person and their behavior. And so when you're upset at somebody, you realize that it's the behavior you want to change. It's not that you hate the person. Or for ourselves. It's like, it's, it's not that we don't hold ourselves accountable for changing. And it's not that we don't hold other people ac- accountable for change. And that's like when we get to equanimity practice, we talk more about that. But with the metta practice, you're distinguishing so that you can have that deep connection with anyone, no matter what. Maya Baba said a wonderful thing. He was a teacher from India that moved to Virginia. He said that when we're angry at someone, we shout. Our voices raise, and you, you can hear it in your own voice or another. I know sometimes I'll hear myself on a cell phone, you know, I'll be, and all of a sudden I'm talking really loud, and I'm trying to get some point across, and it's unpleasant. And so there's that, you know, when we're, when we're angry, we, we shout or yell because we feel so separate. And he said, when two people are in love, we either whisper or we don't use any words at all. Sometimes when I practice, I just get in touch with that, like, again, that hush and the quiet and the whispers. And then we drop into that wordless, pre-verbal awareness where it's even quieter than whispers because there's no separation. There's no need for the words. We have a friend that has um, was a psycho has been a, is a psychotherapist for thirty years or more, and uh, said that when he first the first years of working with people, that um, he just would try to get to the truth, you know, to kind of go through people's defenses and get to the truth. And he said that now he just totally respects people's defenses. And that what he tries to do is very gradually develop a relationship of trust. And I think of the meditation practice that way, that, that we, if, if you have a relationship of trust with yourself around resistance, that it's out of that trust <laughs> that the, the resistance will gradually melt. So, for example, if you have a chronic pain anywhere in your body, and if you're human, you will 
have areas of tightness, even if it's behind the heart center and you have that meat hook, you know, that real <laughs> tight spot there. You know, if you have a lot of other tight spots, you might not notice it. But if, if you don't have that right, you know, you can imagine again how sensitive the heart center is. So everything in our life will be going into protecting that. So if the shoulders are tight, if the hips, everything is going to go into protecting this. Because this is your... This is your instrument of consciousness itself. So when we start practicing and we start feeling these dhamma pains, you know, it's like where the body has sacrificed itself for us because the mind wasn't strong enough to feel something. And we start relaxing and melting and we start hating the parts of our bodies that are actually, we think of them as weaker, but they're actually the stronger sacrificial areas that are protecting us until the mind-heart can actually feel what, what's there, right? And we tend to hate those places. That's what's so funny. And so that what, what we're saying about resistance, when a pain comes up in the body and the mind goes, no, and you force through that, that's not having a relationship of trust. That's just, if we're trying to be with something out of trying to get rid of it or trying to get something, that doesn't build trust. If you're trying to be with it because you want a relationship with it, that builds trust. So I had to learn very gradually with all the different things that happen in one body and mind. It's with physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain, how important it is to move away from pain when you're not mindful, when you're not protected by mindfulness or loving kindness or compassion and the motivation is aversion and attachment, it's better to go to something else. So when I first started practicing, I would say 99% of my experience wasn't acceptable to me. It probably was 99.9, but I try to give it a whole percentage. And that can be daunting when you, you know, like you just start seeing again, you know, you, you have that pain and you just want it to go away, you know. And then it's like we think that if we stay with it, that it's going to make it go away. But in actual fact, all you're doing is reinforcing aversion and attachment. That took me years and years to understand. And it's not like we don't get another chance. That's what's so amazing. It's like, particularly with the karmic knots, a karmic knot is something that, you know, we both kind of started describing karmic knots long ago. It's like karmic means that wherever you took birth, whatever mother, father, aunts, uncles, whatever town it was, whatever schools you had, however you came into this world um, and the woundings that happened, those are karmic knots. And you can usually tell when somebody says something in the hall or you hear oneself say, I'm still feeling this. That smells, usually, it's a karmic knot. <laughs> or if I remember some years into my practice, and 
the so-called friend said to me, I was describing coming out of this retreat, this kind of deep old moon, and she said kind of arrogantly, she's like, are you still feeling that? And it's like, you know, oh, it's just like you're so vulnerable, right? And somebody says, you're still going through that? You know, it's just like, oh, it's not helpful. <laughs> you just, the shame, right? The shame and the humiliation, because it's the karmic knot that we actually have the most learned resistance to. And that, again, it takes so much practice to get. I have to say to myself when a karmic knot comes up, oh, I learned this. I learned to resist this. I really didn't have a witness to help me learn this. And it's hard. It's like we think that if we practice a long time, that everything should disappear. Our humanity. You know, we think all the pleasant emotions should be there and all the unpleasant emotions should go away. But, you know, we'll say it again and again. It's like, it's not like that. It's like the resistance to these experiences start to melt because there's more and more strength, there's more and more skill to go, oh, fear. Oh, I know how to be with that. Or, oh, fear. Well, I'm not up for that. I can be with something else. You see, there's the skill to move away to something skillful, and there's the skill to go into it. They're both skillful. And it's learning what skillful means are, because, you know, it's, it's like there's a tendency for us, maybe if we're always moving away from pain, or we're always going into pain, then there isn't the balance. But if we start knowing what skillful means are, skillful means is really assessing, is there mindfulness or metta? And you just check. You just try it. Can I be with this rage? (laughs) Wow, wow. Okay, maybe it's time to be with something else. And that takes practice, you see, because say there's a chronic pain, usually the attention will go to it thousands of times. Just because we try to learn how to be with something else while that's going on, it means that you go maybe to your hands. And so, and the sensation calls the attention, and you just let the attention be with it for a few seconds, and then you learn how to move away and be with something else. And then it gets called back. You learn away. You learn to move away. Do you see? It's like it's the learning. It's the training. It's the training not to hate it. You're moving away because there isn't enough strength to be with it. And that's that rest. An anchor is supposed to be rest. The anchor isn't getting lost in thinking about it because that's tiring. But the anchor is you move to something else that's present, time awareness. And that anchoring is meant to be a very deep rest. (laughs) And it'll be more restful the more you learn how to just let the attention go, come back, come go, come back. It starts to be more uh, stabilized, the anchor. Um, and then over time, it's not, it's not a struggle. You just say there's a lot of pain up here. Your attention just stays down there and it just lets it be okay. It's not trying to get rid of it. It's not bothered by it. And then if you get really tired, you might get bothered by it. And then that's okay. 
it's human. So mostly it's starting to get to know yourself. And when you're high energy, be a warrior. You go right into things and you might drown and you come out. You know, it's like because there's so much more of a chance to be mindful or have metta when we have higher energy. And it's, this is an overgeneralization, but it's, it's something to start to um, at the least pay attention to. You know, if you're really sick, how more vulnerable you are to mind states that are negative. So when we're tired, we're more vulnerable to, to negative mind states. And you start to know it, and you start navigating through the tireder places, you bring in much more metta. You bring in the benefactor more, or, or you know, you do whatever is easier. Maybe you just sit there and let yourself space out. But you come back once in a while. Whatever, you know, you just start to know yourself. Medium energy is actually the most interesting because you can be with something for a while and then you have to be humble enough to go, okay, that's enough. You move away. You go into it again and then you, you just feel strengthened by that. You move away. And the reason I say this is an overgeneralization is sometimes we're tired and we can be with things. So you don't want to always think, okay, it's black and white thinking. It's much more that you just have um, an understanding that often when we're high energy, we can be with um, whatever is appearing with more skill. And it's the time to really explore our edges of, um, it's time to stretch the muscle into more painful places if they appear because we'll, we'll, we'll be able to explore it and learn. Whereas if we're tired, we tend to take things very personally and we're usually trying to get rid of or get. So over time, for example, you know, with this um, two types of rare and precious types of human beings. With the physical pain in our body, there comes a time where we start saying, thank you for protecting me. Thank you for protecting me. Or with the defense, thank you for protecting me. There's just such a gratefulness for these places rather than attacking them. So another way to talk about this is that if you have a a great respect for your defense system, then you realize that it's okay not to be with pain. And and then there's more rest, and the rest builds up energy, and uh, Sayada Upandita described having energy as courageous energy. Energy meaning courage. The more energy have we have, the more courage we have. So um, respecting resistance isn't avoiding pain. It's a wise pacing. And it, it requires the metta of patience. We have a very deep wiring that tells us that pain isn't okay. 
and it tends to lead to sort of worry or catastrophe, you know, thinking. And that's why I spent so much time on this, that we worry because we care. We eat because we care. We want to have a better sitting because we care. We want to get liberated because we care. We want to get rid of the pain because we care. It's like mostly it's very helpful to remember that we care, but we, we lose uh, the connection with it. So when you're eating, you know, eating is a very strange thing, yeah? We're eating other things, whether they're vegetables or not, but just eating is such a strange thing. And to have, to remember that we're doing it because we care. If we stay in touch with that, it's, it's um, so important. Everything. We get angry because we care. Do we remember to stay in touch with that? If you get in touch with the care, usually the anger gets softer. This is from um, Srinazargadatta Maharaj. Usually we have to be sad to know gladness and glad to know sadness. True happiness is uncaused, and this cannot disappear for lack of stimulation. Happiness is not the opposite of sorrow. It includes all sorrow and suffering. But why talk of happiness at all? You do not think of happiness except when you are unhappy. A person who says, now I am happy is between two sorrows, past and future. <laughs> this happiness is mere excitement caused by relief from pain. Real happiness is utterly unselfconscious. It is best expressed negatively as, there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. There is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. We could be saying that over and over and over. It's that reassurance that we're okay. That there's nothing wrong when pain appears, that it's part of life. I often joke that it would be great if we could just um, have an IV next to each person and that we'd just have a slow drip of reassurance, you know. <laughs> and sometimes I imagine that when I'm sitting or walking, when I feel like I need that reassurance. I just put myself on a drip. This might seem a little odd, but bear with me. This is from Amy Leach, Things That Are. It used to be, if we had an important question about life, we could visit the oracle. Perched on her tripod over a vent in the earth, we would bring her honey cakes of devotion and ask her, should I cross the river tonight? 
Why is there a pall over my heart? Should I marry Cyril? She would wait for the earth to exhale, and then, exhilarated by the vapors, she would reply, Oaths are like paper feet. Or, Find where the goat loves salt water. And, Wing a willow, way away. Her messages were as intelligible as the jingly messages of wind chimes. But now when we visit the tripods, all we find perched there are cameras. Hardly reminiscent of oracles. They are literal thinkers. Like most anyone, we ask for advice. You should cross the river tomorrow because all the ferries are full tonight. You feel depressed because your riboflavin intake has been inadequate. (laughs) Cyril is a good choice for a husband. He is involved in the community and he has never been convicted of a felony. (laughs) Such concrete answers. Sometimes one misses the old inspired answers. Why should conversation always be so much more coherent than experience? (laughs) So remember that when you're trying to figure out your practice. You know, we're comparing... It's amazing. We compare ourselves with ourselves. Like, it's serious competition. It's incredible. It's so painful, the judging... I used to always joke that if somebody would volunteer, just one person would volunteer to have their mind hooked up on a loudspeaker for a sitting, (laughs) nobody would do it. Nobody, the Dalai Lama wouldn't do it. (laughs) Nobody would do it because we know that it would be so humiliating Right? Even if it was anonymous, it's just too painful to have exposed. And this is like if you just imagine what's going on in your head, and then you look at everybody's head in this room, and then you think of the planet and all the people on the planet, it is why we teach. (laughs) It's why the Buddha taught. I mean, it's just, you know unfathomable and it's uh, so much of it is like we're trying to get the best deal right we're trying to like have it be that you know peak experience and that's what i mean by less you know less than one percent of my experience was acceptable only the peak experience was acceptable you know and that's that happiness that he's talking about that it's not happiness it's just totally in between you know, the past and future that, you know, that it's so um, fragile. So the comparing, the striving, the judging, the expectation, the agenda, it's like expectation and agenda kills connection. And I don't say it lightly, it kills connection, kills it. 
the Japanese word for a begging bowl means just enough. And the Buddha um, suggested that people be monks and nuns. And uh, they beg for their food. They have a begging bowl, a set of robes. So it's important to understand the underlying meaning of things. The Japanese word, just enough for begging bowl, it's like that sense of... Um, it, it's not even being, it's not even good enough. It's just enough. And, and when we have a connection with something in the present moment, it, it will be just enough. And often it's almost too much. It's like if you try to even taste, you know, one spoonful of soup. It's so hard to just be that simple. But if you actually achieve it, it's like it's just enough. If you're with one breath and you can actually be okay with just that, it's often more than we can actually take in. And and this is the shifting that is so powerful when at the beginning of the talk I was describing that just sense of just being just being with a sound or, you know, it's like when we actually let ourselves connect, that's usually the peak experience. And of course we want it back. It's like when we have a deep experience in meditation, it's important to let yourself want it back because that's the honesty. You'll want it back and if there's enough equanimity, it'll be just wanting and you, it'll be just like the sound of a bird, just wanting. We don't get caught in it. We kind of drop back into a quiet place. And that's a lot of the art of meditation. Once you taste something um, powerful and sweet, uh, we want it back. And until you really genuinely don't need it back, it won't come back. That's, that's where this is foolproof. You know, and, and so when we're kind of like a fish out of the water flapping around, like, I want it back. You know, I'm no good because I can't get it back. All the ways that we get, it's like, it's just because we're not seeing clearly. And to be kind, to remember to be kind, to remember that we all need so much compassion. And anybody who did volunteer to put their mind out on the loudspeaker would help everybody. Because <laughs> we'd know it's universal and we're not alone. So the more we develop the skill of being able to be with breath or sound or feel kindness toward <laughs> you know the sound of a bird or the sound of or, or you know taking a bite of food or kindness toward anger toward kindness toward joy you see that's relationship the the intent is getting more and more of a relationship of kindness and wisdom with what's happening not trying to get something or to, to get rid of it 
We're not trying to get anything from the retreat. We're trying to learn how to be with sleepiness so that when sleepiness comes 10 days from now, we can be with it. Low energy. You're at work. Low energy. Oh, I wonder if I can be with this. Oh, you're at work or you're at home. I'm angry. Oh, (laughs) can I be with this, right? It's like this is incredibly important. Do I have a relationship or am I going to just be caught in the knee-jerk reaction? There's a Saidao or abbot of a monastery down the Irrawaddy a bit from the monastery we, we go to in Burma. And we nicknamed him the Happy Sayadaw. His name is Myatong Sayadaw. Uh, but he really is the happiest person I've met. And it has nothing to do with pleasure or pain. It's just, you might say that the practice is working. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, and it's, it's, he's also very interesting in that when he's not engaging, he's, he's totally back. Like, he's just practicing all the time, and very quiet. But if somebody comes in, he totally engages. But in that process of being with that person, he engages, but then he's quiet. And then he'll really engage, but quiet, very, very powerful. Um, And one time somebody came in the room when I was there and uh, she asked him, um, do you ever get angry? And he said, "Um, it's just so, it's so natural. He's like, oh yeah, I get angry when I feel misunderstood. And then I'm mindful of it and it goes away. Everything's funny, you know? And you can just, it's like that, such a lightness of being because there's no, like, pretense. It's like, yeah, I get angry when I feel misunderstood. Totally clear. Don't, we do, right? We get angry. We want to be understood more than anything. And yet, you know, it's like he's saying, and then I'm, I'm with it, feeling misunderstood, feeling misunderstood. And it's fine. It's just like watching a cloud go through the sky. You don't let the cloud go. It just passes. You don't, you know, it's like the stream. You don't say to the stream, let go, let go. It's going, and that's how life is. It's going, and then the resistance is why it's when it feels stuck, and that's why resistance is so painful. Because we're saying no, but actually it's actually happening. It's moving. Life is moving. And we're stopping it. And it hurts. One, another friend of mine asked um, this happy Sayadaw, Myatang Sayadaw, um, what practice he does now. And he's in his 90s. And he said, oh, on the in-breath, I just say, you know, everyone I know is going to die. 
And on the out-breath I say, and I too will die. And then he said, um, and you know what? And we were all like, no. And he says, when I die, I'm not going to be surprised. (laughs) 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 Interesting. Again, you, you know, you can hear that teaching and it's like, whoa, that's intense because it's, a, it's a, considered a guardian meditation, that meditation on death. On the in-breath, everyone I know will die. On the out-breath, I too will die. But look how he has learned from it. And, you know, we always have that sense that maybe we're going to luck out, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's not going to happen to us, but it will. <laughs> There's a teacher that, um, another Sayadaw in Burma, his name is Ujodaka, uh, and Steve's been friends with him for some time, but I just got to meet him this year. Uh, and he said, um, just all I want is to be able to be mindful until I die. It makes me so happy. That's all I want is to be mindful until I die. Very sweet. I don't know if you know of the writer um, Richard Wright. He wrote Native Son. He was born in um, rural Mississippi in 1908. He took refuge and died in Paris in 1960. He was one of our America's great writers, African-American. And he, um, he wrote over 4,000 haiku at the last 18 months of his life. But just in 18 months, he wrote over 4,000 haiku. So this one is about anger. As my anger ebbs, the spring stars grow bright again and the wind returns. There's such a deep understanding of impermanence. If we understand anger is impermanent, we don't get as caught up in it. As my anger ebbs, the spring stars grow bright again and the wind returns. You could pretty much say that about any difficult place, right? We tend to not notice that anger has disappeared. Pay attention to it because sometimes it's two days later that we notice. And the more you get caught up with that, you know, the more you start to see, well, when did the fear end, you know? We usually miss it, but usually there's that sense of 
the spring stars grow bright again and the wind returns. You know, we come back, we're more connected again. A sleepless spring night, yearning for what I never had and for what never was. Wanting. And again, remembering when there's a, the kindness is there, the love and the mindfulness is there, wanting is totally okay. Aversion is totally okay. We're not buying into it, but we're not repressing it. It just, it's just like the sound of a bird. It'll come and go by itself. It's possible. going to end with a Srinasar Gadada. It's a bit in, it's bit powerful, but I think you're all up for it. The world cannot give what it does not have. Unreal to the core, it is no use for real happiness. It cannot be otherwise. We seek the real because we are unhappy with the unreal. Happiness is our real nature, and we shall never rest until we find it. But rarely we know where to seek it. Once you have understood that the world is but a mistaken view of reality and is not what it appears to be, you are free of its obsessions. Only what is compatible with your real being can make you happy, and the world, as you perceive it, is its outright denial. Keep very quiet and watch what comes to the surface of the mind. There is no knowledge, only being. There is no knowledge, only being, in which being itself is knowledge. To know by being is direct knowledge. True happiness is uncaused. It is not the opposite of sorrow. It includes all sorrow and suffering. Let's sit for a minute. May we be happy and peaceful of heart.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.